You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Good morning, all. Welcome to Mr. Jackson's neighborhood. I'd wear a sweater today, but it's a little bit too warm. The reason I'm in a chair is because I like it. And I roll, I'm going to roll with the pastor today. Uh, The reason I'm in a chair is because for the last few years, I've had a problem called anemia, and that's simply where I don't have enough blood. And uh, the doctors are working on it, and you have those good days and bad days. Today is one of those middle days. So since I do not want to do five minutes of a message and lay down a nap, I thought it'd be better to be in the chair. I told Mike I couldn't preach because I was too tired. He just said, get your chair and stop whining. So uh, anyway, we're in the third week of our campaign of our small life groups and all going through the book of Ephesus, uh, or Ephesians, I should say, about the city of Ephesus. And uh, this is not your typical political campaign. So I want to assure you, you do not need to erase any emails insult your neighbor. However, I am completely in support of building a fence across Canada to keep those Canadians away. And they will pay for it. The purpose of today's message is to look at diversity within the body of Christ. We do a wonderful job as a church of loving one another And I want to applaud you for that. Sincerely, that's one of the great things you folks do. But we always need to be pressed on to do more. And when we look at the church in Ephesus, they had a real problem there. I think one maybe we can identify with somewhat. And one I'll try to demonstrate to you along that line. So when we think about this letter to Ephesians, and by the way, if you want to follow along with the Bible, our ushers will give you a Bible. You can find Ephesians in the New Testament. If you'd like to own a Bible that you don't have one, the one that's being passed out is not the one you take home. We will give you another Bible out of the Information Center after the service if you'd like one. Um, So just use this one when you're done. Leave it on the chair. Ephesians is in the New Testament. And uh, what were the letters are? What makes Ephesians or the city of Ephesus so important? A lot of attention is kind of given to it here. We're basing our whole six weeks on this. About the family of God. Ephesians really talks about a unique family. Ephesus was probably the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire. Maybe perhaps after Rome and perhaps after Corinth. It was a wealthy city and a large city. Probably nearly a million people in residence there. And they were all hired by basically one industry within that city, and that was idol making or idol worshiping. Ephesus was the capital of, of the emperor worship, it was the capital of uh, magic cults, and it was also the capital of Diana worship. So, what's the emperor worship? Emperor worship basically was the political party of the emperor. If you wanted favor in the empire to become a prince or a ruler or a province or something, 
you would join the club of the emperor and you would purchase perhaps a temple someplace uh, along a busy road, collect the money and then send it to the emperor as bribe, uh, taxes, excuse me, uh, uh, taxes. Um, so that's what you would do and you'd get prominence that way. You could do it that way. You would go to Ephesus to kind of register and buy yourself a piece of the road and collect taxes at that point. If you wanted to learn about magic or the occult or wanted to dabble in the dark arts, you would go to Ephesus. They had, it wasn't Harry Potter's place. This was for the dark, evil, hurtful things along that line. But perhaps the most hurtful thing, even though it sounds on the surface delightful, was the worship of Diana. Diana was like the mother God. She was supposed to be everything you never got from Mama. She was listener. She was caring. She'd, work, she'd, she'd, wound, she'd heal your wounds. She'd take care of everything. And she had all kinds of idols. You could get them with multiple breasts, two breasts, five breasts, six breasts, whatever you wanted, whatever you felt you needed. And you could get them in all kinds of sizes as well, not the breasts, the idols. You could get pocket size. You could get garden gnome size, house size, or city size, free delivery if you buy two. So almost everybody in Ephesus, uh, in, in, in Ephesus, was part of this temple program uh, going along. And it was a dark, seamy city. So many of the young women were sex slaves. That's where you would go to worship Diana. The way you worshipped her was by having a sexual experience with one of the temple prostitutes. And it was often the, 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 the stolen daughters from other parts of the, the country brought in there. And if, a, and if a temple prostitute got pregnant, she was out of a job. And she was sent out from the temple to have her baby or to be given an abortion. And her job was over with. Not that it's a job she chose, probably one forced upon her. So there was a dark, seamy side to the city. It was a painful place to be. But it was huge. It drew an awful lot of visitors and all. In fact, it drew the Apostle Paul. As he went through there on his first missionary journey, Paul went to one of the large Jewish temples there in Ephesus and told them about Jesus Christ, how he had fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament, how he was the Messiah. And there was a tremendous result from that, that many of these Jews believed, and they founded the beginning of the church there in Ephesus, primarily a Jewish church, but one where the Gentiles were also attracted to it. And it really began to grow. And of course, like the Apostle Paul always does, he went and got himself arrested. And so then he had to leave after that. Um, but then a few years later, Paul comes back and Paul spends two more years at Ephesus. This time, he tends to go back and go after the Gentiles. Now, Ephesus was primarily a secular or Gentile city. I shouldn't say secular. They worshipped all kinds of gods everywhere. But a, but a very cynical who really believes in God? We don't, but you can buy my idol for 1095. Um, so it was really a, a, a sad, hard place to be in. But as the Gentiles heard the good news of Christ, they responded by the truckloads. Imagine, all your life, you know there is no real God because you make them. You make them out of gold and brass. You make them out of stone and wood. 
and you sell them on the street corners. You know the cynicalism of the whole thing that, of course, this little piece of wood I carved is going to really bring you blessing and hope. They knew they were all lies, but it was a lie they all kept up and a facade they all kept up because that was the industry of the city. So when the Apostle Paul comes along and says, let me tell you about the one true God, he had their attention. And then Paul said, let me tell you about what he did for you. Hold on, God did something for me? No, it doesn't work that way, Paul. We're slaves to God. We're to serve him, worship him. We're to give everything to him. We're to do blood sacrifices. In fact, the idea of serving God in that time was so bad that during one of the Greek wars, uh, one of the Greek kings was having a terrible time getting his navy across the uh, Aegean Sea. And history records that he wrote a letter to his wife and said, Would you please send our oldest daughter to the battlefield? She'll help us with the victory. So the daughter was sent with much fanfare to this Greek king. And when he got there, he says, Sweetheart, thanks for coming. Now a victory is ours. He then beheaded his daughter and poured her blood into the sea. The winds changed direction. And he said, I see I had victory. God answered my prayers. That was the ugliness and the harshness of worshiping false gods. But as Paul began to preach to these, these Gentiles in Ephesus, he said to them, not only is there one God, not only has he done something for you, he has paid the price for your rebellion and your sin. Jesus sent, God sent Jesus to die for you. And we are raised with that message, and it may not grip our hearts, but when you think about it, in the darkness of a man's heart, and he says, God sent his son to die for me, the people were overwhelmed. And they began to, to give their life to Christ in, in, the, in the truckloads, busloads, so much so that the very business of idol-making in Ephesus began to go down. There was a shortage on idols. Why? Because the Gentiles were abandoning that work. They didn't want to do that anymore. They wanted to follow Christ. And they were being persecuted and hounded by the unions in Ephesus, some being arrested, some being beaten in the streets. So they go to the church for understanding, for acceptance. And they did not find the acceptance that they thought they would get. Because you see, there was a problem in this in the church of Ephesus. How did it begin? It began with the Apostle Paul going to the Jews. And they responded because for them, it was the fulfillment of Scripture. For the Gentile, it was simply a miracle of God who knew so little. And there was a separation between how the Jews lived their life and worshipped God and how the Gentiles did. And the Gentiles felt separated. They felt put down. So Paul writes to these Gentiles and says this in chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that is those of you in the flesh, 
have been called the uncircumcised. In other words, you're not a Jew. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul is saying, that's what they call you Gentiles, the uncircumcised, the dirty. In fact, the most common word a Jew would use to refer to a Gentile was dog. How about that? Dog. Even within the church, they were considered dog, which may have been a cut above the other term that Jews used for people called barbarian. What was a barbarian in a Jewish's mind? Someone who does not read or write. So it could be either a barbarian or a dog. You pick it, you know, get your t-shirts made. I am a barbarian. If it was somebody else to read it to you, though. Um, but Paul says, I understand your dilemma, Gentiles. You were separated from Christ. Can you imagine for the Gentile, he had no hope of a Christ ever coming. Because he did not have the Old Testament prophecies. It hit him out of the blue when Paul said, God died for you. He sent his son to die in your place. The Gentile never belonged to anyone or any place. Israel always had a thing called the nation of Israel. Think of that. Wherever you were from was your city. But for a Jew, wherever they went within the world, I am of the nation of Israel. They belonged. They felt that God had made promises to Israel. Therefore, those promises will be fulfilled no matter where I go. But for the Gentile, they never had that kind of security. They never had that understanding. They were alone in the world. And the Jews sometimes played that up. They were friendless. No Gentile even knew the Ten Commandments. Why? God hadn't told them. This doesn't mean that Gentiles didn't have laws. They had plenty of laws. They had the Roman law. They had Greek law. They had laws of Hammurabi. They had a whole history of laws. But only one nation on the face of this earth can say, Our law was written by the hand of God. That's what the Jews had. The Gentiles did not have that sense of history or permanence or acceptance. In short, the Gentile was really hopeless without Christ. He was, he was worshiping many gods without knowing the one God, Yahweh. And because of this, the Jews felt themselves to be somewhat superior. In fact, they began to say to the Gentiles, well, you really don't know your Old Testament. The Gentiles said, what's an Old Testament? You really are kind of, you know, just like dogs. You're running packs. You don't have any, you know, there's nothing that makes you special. How about we do circumcision on you guys? And most guys are going, nah, not for me. No thanks. Because you see, the Jew could brag about a his circumcision. It was done to him as a child. But now as a man, these people were saying, circumcision today, no bacon tomorrow. 
I don't want to become Jewish. I want to be what Christ calls me to be, a follower of his. And the Jews had begun to miss it, and the Gentiles began to feel so left out. But Paul says this to encourage the Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. Everyone is brought near. You do not need to become Jewish to become a believer. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He let us know war with God was over with. He is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, the church was to be a place where we were all one, not two, not divided. In abolishing the commandments, Jesus never broke a commandment. Jesus did not abolish the law, the Ten Commandments, or even the 600 laws that the Jews developed after those Ten Commandments. Jesus always tried to break the laws of the ordinances. Those little pesky things about how you wash your hands, how you tie your shoes, how you comb your hair. And suddenly those things became like a law and Jesus said, those are nonsense. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself. That summed up the Ten Commandments. That's how Jesus lived. But the Jews were caught up in all kinds of minutia and law and the Gentiles felt even more separated from God. But he said, he abolished those ordinances and he abolished the dividing wall. In Jerusalem, in fact, uh, in the temple area, in all three temples, the one built by Solomon, the one built by Zerubbabel, and the one built by King Herod the Great, uh, there was a temple for women. There's a a patio for women to come and talk and visit, talk about the things of God or just visit. There was a place for Gentiles to meet, for Gentiles to talk. But then there was the Temple Mount at the top for all the Jewish men to get around and be able to talk about what they wanted to talk about. That's where the real business of Israel took place up there as far as doctrine and talks about God and all those wonderful things they were supposed to be a part of. But right around the the temple of the the court of the Gentiles, there was a wall. It was about five feet high, went completely around. There were some openings. There was no gate, just openings. And archaeologists have found the signs that went by those gates. And have you ever gone hiking when you were a kid and passed by somebody's driveway and it said, trespassers will be shot? says the same thing. It doesn't say shot, okay? This is what it said. If you were a Gentile and you walked by this, this opening, it would say this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. How about that? We're going to kill you and it's your own stupid fault. They were excluded from that. They weren't to go. We say, well, okay, they were Gentiles and the, and the temple area was special. So what's left for the Gentile at the temple? Well, the court of the Gentiles. Isn't that great? Wait a minute. 
what's in the court of the Gentiles continually and throughout the history of Israel. That's where the buying and selling of the sheep and the cattle and the money changers were. So when a Gentile came up to Jerusalem, would go to the temple area to find out more about Yahweh, what he found out about it is Yahweh is nothing more than a God of commerce. The place I am to come, you sell your bulls and your goats and your sheep and your doves and you change money at a ten times the amount rate. It was in this very court of Gentiles that Jesus sat down and I believe for three or four hours carefully made a whip and looking at those money changers, no doubt giving them a bit of a chill on their back as he would look at them as they knew who he was. They did not see him as Messiah, but they knew, isn't he the healer? Isn't he the one that teaches? Isn't he the one they call the rabbi? Why is he making a whip? And when Jesus stands up and cracks that whip, he calls them all about what you've done. You've turned my father's house into a place of business, into no longer a place of God or worship. There was no place for the Gentile to go to learn about Yahweh. So the Gentiles were turned away again because of the Jewish propensity to say, us four, no more. Jews did not want to really include the Gentiles with them. But Paul says that wall's been torn down. There's no longer a separation. You Gentiles are every bit a part of the church. You are every part of belonging. And sometimes that wall that divides us are the walls that divide our own hearts. Do you ever feel sometimes that you don't belong in this church because of past sin? Do you feel somehow you don't belong in this because you never went to Christian school as a kid? That your parents weren't believers? Or that somehow you've fallen away from your walk with God and somehow there's no way back? That's not what God says. There's always a way back. There's always a way right with God. We are all the same. The church has one level. We're all on that level. Greek, Roman, Jew, male, female, child, adult. We are all one and equal in Christ. And sometimes we allow our past sins to keep us from moving forward with God. I counseled an older, older gentleman in this church on occasion and he wrestles with feeling unacceptable to God completely because of what he did at 15 years old. He can quote scripture as good as I can. But you know the one thing he can't do? Believe that God forgave him for something he did that was so petty and so small. But for him, he recognized it was pure, damnable child's play it was horrible and he just can't let himself be forgiven he feels separated from his fellow Christians at times because of that that's the tool of the devil to make you feel you've done something that makes you a second class citizen in the church you are not you are not there are no second class citizens 
You are God's child. You're adopted into the family of God. And when you're adopted into the family of God, you're given all the rights and privilege of adoption, which means you cannot be unadopted. I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but in Roman law, that's what Paul's referring to here to give us a picture of adoption. If a, if a father adopts a child, that adopted child goes to the front of the line as far as, as far as inheritance goes. The real children, the natural born children of that family, can be taken out of the will. But the adopted child can never be taken out of the will by Roman law. That's what Paul was illustrating. He wasn't saying Roman law was superior. He was simply saying that's the kind of adoption you have as, as, as believers. You have been adopted into the family of God and you cannot be disenfranchised. You cannot be taken away. We are all the same. Jew or Gentile, we are all the same. So Paul says this to them to make them feel like they're more a part of the body of Christ. Verses 19 to 22. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who are saints? Anybody who believes. You are a saint. If you want to refer to yourself as saying, I'm St. Ron or St. Doug or St. Bob or St. Tony, go ahead. We're going to think you're weird. But you can do it because you are a saint. In other words, you're considered a child of God. And that's the title you get to call yourself. You are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being a cornerstone. Prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament, this new thing that Christ created called the church, where we are all the same and all equal. That's what we are members of. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And we are all part of that. We're not to think of ourselves as not being able to be a part of that body of Christ. When you think about what is it that may keep people from coming to this particular church? Can you think of the barriers that might be there? The biggest barrier is the easiest to overcome. It's not a barrier that necessarily that you erect. It's a barrier out there. And that is, people will rarely come to this church unless someone invites them. Just inviting someone. Would you come to me with come to me to church with me? When I was a new believer, I was about 16 years old and my cousins took me to Youth for Christ rally. And I gave my heart to Christ at that particular rally. And then for the next six weeks, talk about dedication. For the next six weeks, my cousins picked up this 16-year-old kid and Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they gave me donuts and milk. I'm talking Jesus is real, man. Okay, that's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, you, you start where you got to, you know. Um, but they would pick me up for six weeks, took me to their church, walk me to the youth room, make sure I walked in, I sat down, and somebody put their arm around me, like a, like a you know, arm leg. He's not getting out, we're there. After six weeks, I began to feel like I belonged. 
Now, the reason I felt I belonged was because I'd answered a question wrongly. Isn't that terrifying? You go to a, to a Bible study, and, you, and after five weeks, kind of go, five weeks, I, I should say something, I've got to say something, something, something. And the youth pastor said, who can name the ten tribes of Israel? I said, Iroquois, Apache, Flathead. And they go, no, wrong tribes. And I thought, you know that commercial like for, you know, Southwest, want to get away? But I couldn't get away. Because the biggest guy in the world was sitting next to me. He was a football player for the rival team. Put his arm around my neck and pulled me into his chest. I thought he was trying to kill me. And he starts laughing. Kind of goes, That's the funniest thing I ever heard. And he's laughing, he's laughing, he's laughing. And I thought, he's either laughing at me, but I'm going to laugh with him. And so he hung on to me for the rest of the hour. And for a single little boy with no dad and a football player with his arm around me, I thought, I really belong now. He can beat up my enemies. <laughs> but you see, it took that kind of people bringing me and loving me and being with me to where I began to feel I belong. Can I encourage you to invite someone that doesn't come to church? And then to sit with them, and if need be, show up at their door with a glass of milk and a donut. It worked for me. I was 16, though. Maybe coffee and a croissant. But you see, someone reached out to me. And in our small groups on the first night, on the back of the last page was a little kind of diagram. had a bunch of squares on it. In the center of that was a little home that kind of that home is meant to symbolize where your home is. And all the empty squares around it were your neighbors. And you were supposed to begin to put na names in there. If you could figure out who they were. And if you couldn't figure out who they were, you're supposed to find out who they were. So you got to turn the paper. It'll be corrected by the end of the six weeks, by the way. So get it turned in. No, I'm just kidding. But you want to begin doing that. It's amazing how people want to be included and involved. About three years ago, we began doing these uh, Christmas parties with their small group, where the small group would bring the food, we'd open our home. And it was my wife's job, because she's shy, to go around the neighborhood and knock on doors and invite people. And so she did that. She went around, you know, invited people into their home. And I remember the first year we did that, this little old guy, about five feet tall, a Chinese fella, couldn't speak English very well, wandered into my home, the big smile on his face, and just sat down in a chair and just sat there with just smiling at everybody. I finally sat down with him after about an hour, kind of feeling embarrassed, like nobody's talking to him. Then again, I'm not talking to him either. So I sat down and said, uh, stupid, where are you from? Down the block. Oh, of course. <laughs> Okay, so what do you do for a living? I'm retired. Okay, 80, all right. Um, so I'm not doing real well with the conversation here with them. But I, I said, well, I'm so glad you came. He goes, you know, he goes, I, I'm the first one to buy my home in this tract 33 years ago. First time anybody ever invite me into another home. 
he still had a smile on his face. He was happy. And he, then he left about a half hour later saying, thank you. He said, I didn't think anybody even knew I lived in that home. Frankly, I didn't. But my wife knocked on his door and said, we're going to have an open house. Come on down. Don't bring anything. Just come on in and sit down if you want to. It's exactly what he did. He came in and he sat down. We began to just talk to him a little bit. He was delighted to be invited. He knew no one, yet he, that he felt safe in the neighborhood to walk six homes down, walk into a couple doors that are wide open, full of about 15, 20 people in the house, and say, Hi, I'm your neighbor down the street. The next year, my wife got out of control. I said, Go up and down the block again, and just invite some people in. She went around the block. She began inviting the people who live behind us. I don't like the people who live behind us. They got this tree, it drops leaves into our pool, you know, and they, they, they don't party. They're quiet people. Their lights go out at 8 o'clock at night, you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't want them over here. They, they, they came into our home. These people were around the block. And I said, Marilyn, they don't belong. They're not part of our block. They're part of another block. I bet you some other small group wants them. And my, my wife goes, get over it. I just was going down and they were just talking. And one person was watering the lawn. Two people were talking to them. I invited all three. That's what she did so well. And just invited them into our home along that line. You can think about doing something like that. What I've discovered is people don't mind being talked to. They don't mind being asked. And then maybe when they do come, just sit with them. And just say, glad you're here. And after we're done, after the story time is done, we'll go out for some, you know, milk and cookies. You know, we've had our music time, we've had our story time, we'll have our snack time. Let them know church is not a scary place. And invite them in. Another place we can think about maybe reaching out that's really close to us, wonderfully close to us. Down that hallway, up the stairs, in a high school room. Right now, there's a group of people meeting for worship. They're Cambodian. If you were to walk up those steps, you'd see a group of people loving the Lord and speaking a language you have no idea what they're talking about. If they're older than you are, they probably do not speak English. But they will smile at you. and They'll be glad you came up to sit with them. If they're your age... They will translate for you because they're honored you would sit with them and they'll tell you what that pastor's saying. If they're younger than you, they're probably looking for the fact of, do I belong to this church? And we work very hard to get their children involved in a youth group, in a junior high group, because those parents know, those grandparents know, their world is not the world of their kids. So they come here so their kids get connected to Jesus Christ through our youth group. But you know what's great about being connected to them? They're always cooking something good. In fact, if you want to get invited to one of their lunches, it's hard. I'll give you the secret. Walk into the kitchen with your donut and coffee and go, that smells good, what's that? An invitation comes just like that. I have to admit to you, to my chagrin, 
I've been invited to an awful lot of luncheons. And I've said no an awful lot of times. I know I need to say yes more often. So they don't feel this is my church and they're just upstairs. I am the Jew. They are the Gentile. Oh no. This is their church. And I want them to know I know them. I love them. And I'm glad they're a part of our church. And I want them to know I am a part of them. So can I encourage maybe three or four of you at some point to really get to screw up the courage to walk into the kitchen, smell that really good food. Don't ask what it is. It just smells good. And just get invited to a luncheon. They really do want you there. Whenever we have a church picnic, they show up with tons of food. They tend to sit by themselves because of the language. But if you sat at that table, they'd serve you up and they'd find someone that could talk with you and you'd hear their stories. And some of the stories of the older adults up there would turn your hair white. You want to hear about persecution? The stories are locked up up there. But they love Jesus too. So think about our neighborhood, the church within our church, all part of the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He is our pivot point. He is the one who invites us in to be all-inclusive. Sometimes we feel there's differences between us and others. There doesn't need to be and there should not be. When you go to a small group, a life group, we've got about three more weeks to be able to go to one of those, join them. It's not too late. I know in my group I've got room for one and a half more. Because I think Monday must be a popular night or we've got the reputation of the best snacks in the world, one of the two. Um, we've got a big group. Um, it's a wonderful group. Some of us have been together for about, uh, one, I think one couple's been there for 20 years. <laughs> Even when I move, they stick with us, you know. Um, 20 years. But one thing I say to my small group every time, the door never shuts. There's always one more empty chair. And, and when a guest walks in, make them feel welcome. And they do. We have six new members this year in our small group. I'm hoping all six stay. So I'm tired of the old ones. What? Did I say that out loud? No. I'm hoping they stay. Because that's what it means to be a church. New blood, new people coming in, new people being a part of what we are a part of as well. It's not just our little group. So you might say, well, if I go out and talk to Carrie about going to this group, and this group's already locked up, they're, they're tight. No. If they are, they're not part of our group. They need to be an open group where people get to know you. And what's the advantage of being in a small group like that? Isn't this church enough? Isn't this just come sing and get a donut and get out of here? Isn't that good enough? It's, it's pathetic compared to what you get out of a small group. Many of you know that my wife and I have really struggled with one of our daughters. It's been a hard two or three years. Very hard. And, you know, we've had times we've cried about it. We've prayed about it. And at times my wife and I, we've lost heart. We've lost hope. Nothing's really going to change. There's nothing more we can say. My wife and I have looked at each other and said, I can't be any more clever than I am to talk to my daughter about 
her changing her life. Nothing I can do. I just have to watch her fall apart and fail. And when that happens, I find a real emptiness inside of myself. And so does my wife. What fills us is our small group. Not church. I love church. What fills us is our small group. Because when we can't pray anymore, my wife and I say, i got nothing to pray about God. We've already prayed every prayer we could pray about this daughter, up inside, one on the other. We're done. The group's not. They pray for us. They encourage us. They say, Ron, Marilyn, don't lose hope. How'd you know we had no hope? Well, they could see it in our eyes. You know, they all had stories. They all didn't have the same experience, but they've known friends and friends of friends who've seen kids turn around their lives. They know what it is to have a tough child sometimes. And frankly, I don't believe my wife and I would be walking in the joy of Christ if it weren't for our small group. So I'll tell you, you have a kid in rebellion, that's a recipe for bitterness. But our small group continues to pour the love and the sugar of Jesus on that. And they support us, they accept us, they love us. I know people in this church love my wife and I. We get, every Sunday morning we get hugs and kisses, it's wonderful. But it's not the same as in my home with the small group and the people that know us intimately. That's what you're missing out on if you're not part of a small group. So we want to be a church that's all-inclusive, where everyone feels welcomed. And I think it begins by inviting a neighbor, by visiting the church in our church, by joining a small group, and taking the risk to be known. I encourage you to take that risk and take that chance. We've got three more weeks of this concerted campaign, and then the groups will just turn maybe into Bible studies or other things, but you'll have a chance to really grow and become a part of it. We have a group for almost every single night of the week. Um, so even I think there's even one on Saturday now. So if you want a small group, we've got one there for you. What's Paul saying here in Ephesus, in Ephesians? He's saying it's easy to feel you don't belong. And sometimes people in the church made you feel that way. The Jews did. The Jews had a tremendous advantage here. They had their whole history of their life. They had a sense of belonging to God most all their life. The Gentiles didn't. But Paul says, oh, but you do belong to God. And it would take for them, their Jewish brothers, to say, let me teach you the Old Testament. Let me help you know the commands of God. And let's learn about Jesus together and grow in faith with him. That's what God calls us to do. And I'd hope you take advantage of that as well. There's no barriers like the wall and the temple between us and our community. Let's make sure there's never a sign that says, if you don't look like us, you don't belong here. Well, they do belong here. I belong here. You belong here. So my encouragement again, love, invite, take a risk, and follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Would you join me in prayer?
Precious Father, I think all of us at times have felt we did not belong. It could have been as simple as not being on a baseball team or not feeling we belonged in a club program or even that in school we were not the one that the kids liked. Sometimes we carry those losses and those bitternesses with us throughout our life. Sometimes we can believe that because of our past lifestyle that we just don't belong here in the church. If people really knew us, they'd reject us. But Father, I think the opposite is true. That if people really knew us, they would rejoice what God has done. For Lord, we are all sinners. We have all come up short. We have all done things, Lord, that we just deeply regret, that have left marks on our souls and our hearts. But Father, you have healed all that. But we don't always believe in the healing. We believe in the lie. And so, Father, we would ask, help us as a church to love our community. Help us as a community, Father, to love one another within this building. Help us to love those that are going through difficult times. Help us, Father, to be loved by you and to know we are loved by you. Thank you for this time to learn from you. And thank you, Father, for what Paul wrote. May it change our hearts and our lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you might want to take on the challenge of joining a small group, and we'd love for you to do that. Others of you might just want to kind of reconnect with God, and we welcome you to do that. We're going to enter into a prayer time right now where uh, there'll be some members of our prayer team up here in the front. If you'd like to come up and pray with someone, we'd really enjoy, enjoy you to come up and do that. Um, just a chance to pray. If you're part of our prayer team ministry, come up, take your places. You can go to anyone you want to. You can actually pray where you're at. But I can say from personal experience that by walking up and talking to someone else, you get that special touch, that chance to say you stepped out, you want to say something to God to someone else. And I encourage you to do that very much. So to make it easier, we'd like you to all stand. And as the band plays, if you'll make your way forward, if you want some prayer, if not, pray where you're at. It's okay. But a chance to consider the words that were spoken, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. Come now, as God calls your heart.